Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Exodus. We're going to read the ninth commandment together, and then we're going to turn over to the New Testament and read a story from the book of Acts. Uh, The ninth commandment is on page 61 of your pew Bibles. It's Exodus chapter 20, verse 16. Uh, The second table of the law, uh, commandments 5 to 10, are slightly shorter than uh, those in the first table of the law. Uh, We've gone through... Honor your father and mother, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. And now we're thinking about the ninth commandment tonight. It's Exodus 20, verse 16. And this is God's word to us. The ninth commandment is, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And then we turn over to Acts and to Acts chapter 5. It's page 913 in your pew Bibles, page uh, 913, Acts chapter 5. And we're going to read a really striking story about Ananias and Sapphira. Acts chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, page 913 in the pew Bibles. Uh, Luke is the author of Acts, and he tells us this story, Acts 5, beginning at verse 1. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? disposal why is it that you have not you have contrived this deed in your heart you have not lied to man but to God when Ananias heard these words he fell down and breathed his last and great fear came upon all who all who heard of it the young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him after an interval of about three hours his wife came in not knowing what had happened And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Amen. And we thank God for his word to us this evening. Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to Exodus 20 and also to Acts chapter 5. Exodus 20 is page 61 in the Pew Bibles and Acts 5 is page 913. We'll be referring to both passages this evening. And as you're turning to those parts of the Bible, uh, let's pray together for a moment. Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you that it's truth and light to us. We thank you that as we read it, we can rely on it and know that you're speaking to us. And we pray that as you speak your truth into our hearts tonight, that we would be open to receive it, that you would come by your spirit and work in us so that we might see the folly of our sin, but also the greatness and glory of our precious Savior, the Lord Jesus. 
in whose name we pray all these things. Amen. I have learned my lessons. I hope I never tell any lies again. Sometimes you become a prisoner of your own lie. Ultimately, I have no excuses. And those were the words of Jonathan Aiken as he acknowledged that his fall from grace was complete. And that was made even more clear when, as news outlets reported, that debt collectors took his Rolex watch and cufflinks, among other possessions, from his house in an effort to recoup his outstanding £2 million legal costs. Aiken was one of the brightest stars in the Conservative Party and was tipped to be a future Prime Minister. But in the blink of an eye, his political career was gone, his marriage had broken down, and his considerable fortune was gone. Aged 56, a reputation that had been built over many years was now in tatters. What did he do? What was his crime? Well, he had lied. He did not tell the truth. The judge who sentenced him to serve time in prison said, for nearly four years you wove a web of deceit in which you entangled yourself and from which there was no way out unless you were prepared to come clean and tell the truth. Unfortunately, you were not. One journalist covering Aiken's fall from grace said, what started as a little lie snowballed into a criminal lie. How did it come about that a senior politician found himself financially bankrupt and morally disgraced? Well, in September 1993, Aiken, who was a government minister, spent a weekend in the Ritz Hotel in Paris. The weekend was paid for by a businessman from Saudi Arabia, but instead of declaring that as a gift, Aiken said that his wife had settled the bill. There was an initial investigation into the weekend, but Aiken was cleared, but the allegations came back stronger than ever. Aiken doubled down and decided to sue those in the media who were accusing him of not telling the truth. The case eventually reached the High Court and Aiken again insisted that his wife had paid the bill at the Ritz. But when evidence was produced that, that, that proved that his wife was in a completely different country at the time, the case collapsed. Aiken was forced to admit that he had committed perjury by falsely claiming under oath that his wife had paid the Ritz bill. He also pleaded guilty to conspiring to prevent the course of justice by drafting a false witness statement under his daughter's name and then getting her to sign it. Well, what started as a little lie snowballed into a criminal lie and left a rising star of the political world financially bankrupt and morally disgraced. Lies. We, we know that it's wrong to tell lies. Well, we've been told that since we were children. But when we hear stories like the one that we've just thought about, we probably think, well, I'm not lying about anything as big or as important as that. And therein lies the problem. We're too familiar with lies and we find it too easy to lie. If the statistics on lying are to be believed, then the vast majority of the population tells lies regularly. Many of us find it hard to get through a week without lying. Two in five people can't make it through a single day. D -d Dishonesty, it would appear, is woven into the very fabric of our culture. Deceit runs through our society like so many dark veins through marble. The, the corridors, of, uh, corridors of power are plagued with it. Universities are rife with plagiarism. And even within the church, we have to acknowledge that there have been and are problems 
with honesty and integrity. The ninth commandment is a call to truthfulness, a commitment to truth that is more than skin deep. God delights in truth, and as we've noted with all the commandments, that this is, this is an issue of honesty and truth. It's a matter of the heart. And again, through the ninth commandment, we're standing before the mirror of God's law. The first deception we need to tackle is self-deception, kidding ourselves that we're fine, ignoring the lies and slanders, the broken promises, and the gossip that we're all guilty of. As the Bible itself warns us, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. The law exposes us, exposes our, our true spiritual standing before God, but yet it also points us to Jesus and we'll see that again as we think through this commandment tonight. What we're gonna to do tonight is think about three main things as we consider the ninth commandment. We're gonna think about what this commandment means and involves, how seriously God takes lies and the uncomfortable truth about ourselves. That's our structure tonight, very straightforward. First of all, let's think about what this commandment means and involves. Exodus 20, 16 says this. It says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. The, the thing about that story about Jonathan Aiken is that a courtroom is not the only place where someone can give false testimony. The, the, the thing to remember about the commandments is that they forbid the most extreme form of any particular sin. So murder is the worst kind of hatred. Adultery is the most destructive sexual sin and so on. S similarly, the ninth commandment forbids the deadliest lie, one that condemns an innocent man for a crime he did not commit. Each commandment applies to lesser sins of the same kind as well. In the case of the ninth commandment, the underlying principle is that God forbids every form of falsehood. This is confirmed by the prophet Hosea, who accused the Israelites of swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. That's Hosea 4 verse 2. Hosea was clearly referring to the Ten Commandments, but rather than saying false testimony, as it says in Exodus 20, 16, he uses the more general word, lying. The ninth commandment means you shall not lie. It's not just about the false testimony people give in court. It's also about the lies we tell to our neighbors and the rumors we whisper between the pews in church. There are lots of different ways to lie. A simple search in a thesaurus will give you a list of different types of lies fabrications, deception, fake news, falsifications, exaggeration, gossip, prevarication. Dishonesty comes in different sizes too. There are the big lies, the, the, the whoppers and the grand deceptions. And then there are the small lies we tell too, the little white lies, the half-truths, the flatteries, the fibs. What we say might be true, but we leave out the details that might put us at a disadvantage or we say something that is technically true, but intended to deceive. We overstate our accomplishment, present ourselves in the best light possible, and we exaggerate other people's feelings, th thinking and saying the worst about others. We mislead, misquote, and misinterpret. We twist people's words, taking things out of context. As Jeremiah so potently reminds us, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The, the, the most blatant violation of the ninth commandment is any lie that harms someone else. 
The particular sin that is forbidden by the ninth commandment is a falsehood against our neighbor. God has given us the ability to speak so that we can use our words to praise him and to bless others. But our speech is corrupted by sin and it has the power to do great damage. James says that the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. That's James 3 verse 6. Like a massive forest fire started by a single careless individual, a lying tongue consumes everything in its path. The tongue is the most dangerous part of our body. And given how dangerous words can be, it's not surprising that when the New Testament lists the sins we need to avoid, it often tells us to watch what we say. The Apostle Paul warned the Corinthians about quarreling, slander and gossip in 2 Corinthians 12, 20. He told the Galatians that discord and dissensions were acts of the sinful nature. And he told the Ephesians to get rid of slander and malice. These sins of speech all break the ninth commandment because rather than being used to build people up, words are being used to tear people down. And it's also important to note that when the Bible talks about gossip, it means something more than just casual talk about other people's business. Gossip is talking about people in a way that damages their reputation with others. And reputations are important. Listen to what Proverbs 22 verse 1 says. It says, a good name, so a reputation, is to be chosen rather than great riches. And favor is better than silver or gold. One problem with gossip is that it tries to steal this treasure. Gossip is such a common sin that we forget how ungodly it is. Before we open our mouths to talk about someone else, we need to ask ourselves some hard questions. Is what I'm about to say true? If so, does it really need to be said to this person in this conversation? Would I put it this way if the person I'm talking about were here to listen? If our words fail those simple tests, then it would be better for us not to speak at all. Christians are to be people of the truth. And that's because we serve a truth-telling God. God the Father is true. The Bible says, let God be true, even though everyone were a liar. God the Son is true. The Bible says that he came from the Father full of grace and truth. Jesus also said that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And God the Holy Spirit is also true. The Bible calls him the, the, the Spirit of truth. If God is true, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit then he must be true to his every word. And so he is. Everything that God has ever said, including every word and every page of the Bible, is absolutely, unmistakably, and entirely true. We can always take God at his word. It therefore follows that if he is true to us, then we must be true to him and also to one another. So that's what this commandment means and involves then. But, but, but aren't those little white lies that we tell okay? Isn't it just one of those things that we lie without really thinking about it or even really noticing it? H- having thought about what this commandment means and involves, let's secondly think about how seriously God takes lies. The, the, there are lots of liars in the Bible. So there's a serpent in the Garden of Eden. And there's Jacob who tricked his brother into selling his birthright. There's the men Jezebel bribed to testify against Naboth. And there are those who told lies about the Lord Jesus. 
But the most terrifying story of deception comes from the early church. It's the story of a husband and wife and their drop dead lie. And we read it earlier on in Acts chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. It's page 913 in the Pew Bibles. The, the, the background or context is that Ananias and Sapphira were, were members of the first church in Jerusalem. It was an exciting time to be a Christian. Jesus had returned to heaven and had poured out his spirit on the church. The apostles were preaching the gospel and performing miraculous signs and wonders. And people were coming to faith in Christ every day. As well as that, Christians were caring deeply for each other's practical needs The book of Acts tells us that there wasn't a needy Christian because all the believers were chipping in and helping each other out. When the first Christians did this, they were saying something very significant. They were saying that they had found their treasure in the Lord Jesus and they were willing to give everything they had for the work of his kingdom. When they sold their property and gave it all back to God, it was a public gesture of their total commitment to Christ. Uh, Acts 4 tells us about a man from Cyrus called Joseph and he sold a field and brought the money from the sale to the feet of the apostles. Joseph wasn't from Jerusalem but he gave to the work of the kingdom in Jerusalem and it was really a generous offering and after it the apostles gave him a new nickname. They, They called him Barnabas which means son of encouragement. Now Ananias and Sapphira saw what Barnabas did and they also noticed how his offering enhanced his reputation in the church. The couple realized that if they wanted to get the kind, of the, the kind of attention they thought they deserved, they needed to make a major donation to the apostles. So Acts 5, 1 and 2 tells us, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. No one will ever know, they must have thought. You should understand that Ananias and Sapphira had the right to use their property any way they wanted. They weren't required by God or anyone else to sell their field. Once they sold it, they weren't obligated to give all their money to God either. The the problem was not what Ananias and Sapphira did, but what they said. They said they were paying God full price when in fact they were taking a slice of the profits. Ananias lied. He acted like he had done something totally for God when in fact he had done it partly for God and partly for himself. Now somehow Peter knew what Ananias had done. Just look at verses three and four. Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Well, why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. P- Peter said three important things to Ananias. First, he told him what his sin was, and it was the sin of deception. He had broken the ninth commandment as well as the eighth and tenth commandments. Second, Peter told Ananias where his sin came from. His sin came from a heart infected by the poison of demonic possession. Satan is the one who filled Ananias' heart with lies. And that's not a surprise because Jesus called Satan a liar and the father of lies. Ultimately, every lie comes from Satan. And then thirdly, Peter told Ananias who he had sinned against. You have not lied to man, but to God. And when you drill down into it, that's what lying really is. 
It's a sin against the God of all truth. Like so many other of the commandments, we're confronted again with the absolute folly and stupidity of sin. How can anyone lie to God and expect to get away with it? That's what Ananias thought would happen. He lies to God and expects to get away with it. But of course, he doesn't get away with it. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. One down, end of story. Well, not quite. Sapphira didn't hear the news. Three hours later, she comes home without knowing what had happened to her dearly beloved. Peter gives her the chance to repent of her sin. He tries to flush out the real price of the seal, but Sapphira only gives the amount of the offering. Whenever, whenever we lie, there's always the danger that we'll get trapped in the web of our own deception. The story about Jonathan Aiken illustrated that, but in Acts 5, Sapphira never saw it coming. Peter accuses her of deception in verse 9, but then he says, Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Bam. Two down. End of story. No sooner had the young men carried Ananias out, so they had to carry Sapphira out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. It's a shocking story, and it surely shows us how seriously God takes this issue, how, how seriously he takes this commandment. We shouldn't expect or fear that, that we will drop dead because of a small or big lie. The events recorded in the book of Acts were special in that they happened during the time of the apostles. The signs and miracles and shocking interventions of God have now ceased. But, but, but God takes lying very seriously because he in himself is truth. He, he cannot tolerate lies or sin in this way. Which brings us finally on to the uncomfortable truth about ourselves. Do you find the story in Acts 5 shocking? Does what, what happened to Ananias and Sapphira shock you? Imagine what it would be like if that happened in our church. Imagine someone dropping dead for what most people would consider a trivial deception, a little white lie about how much they put in the offering plate. Everyone would be shocked. Everyone would be amazed. Everyone would be afraid. That's how it was in Jerusalem. The, the story in Acts 5 finishes in this way. It says, And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. The whole episode sends a, a chill down the spine of everyone connected to the church there. The, the punishment was so severe and so sudden. One day, Ananias and Sapphira were in church singing hymns, going to the Bible study. The next day, they'd been, in, uh, they'd been ushered into eternity. Now, was it really fair of God to do that? At the end of the day, we have to say that it was. Lying is a deadly sin. So Psalm 5 verse 6 says that God destroys those who speak lies. When Ananias and Sapphira dropped to the ground, those words came true. The, the, the implication of that is that only people worthy to, the, that the only people worthy to enter the kingdom of God are people who keep the ninth commandment. But what about people who break it? P people like you and me. In Revelation 21, Jesus says that, that the place liars belong is the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. Every liar deserves to die and after that to suffer God's eternal wrath against sin. 
That's the uncomfortable truth about ourselves. We are all in that category if we're outside of Christ. It shouldn't surprise us that great fear came upon the church in Jerusalem after what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. In some ways, it was a preview of the judgment to come. It was an end-time judgment brought into time and space. Those in the church presumably realized and remembered that they too had broken the ninth commandment and were therefore liars and lawbreakers before God. But fear is a bad motivator. Fear is a bad, bad motivator for us. But that, that's really important to remember. So, so sometimes people hear stirring sermons where the minister puts people over the flames, so to speak, and everyone says, wasn't that a powerful sermon? And some people are moved to think about becoming a Christian simply on, the kind of, uh, on account of the fact that they don't want to experience what the preacher has explained in such vivid detail. Within a few weeks, maybe a few days, maybe even within a few hours, the thought of becoming a Christian has gone because the fear has dwindled. Fear is a bad motivator. What we actually need to see and understand is grace. Grace is what we receive when we're willing to confess the real truth about ourselves and all of our sin. What, what happens when that happens, when we confess our sin before God, is that we're able to see the real truth about Jesus and what he has done for our salvation. It's only when we tell the truth about our sin that we're able to see how much we need a savior. And what was it that he said? Well, he said, you will know the truth and the truth will, the truth will set you free. That's the ninth commandment then. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Put simply, it is do not lie. What this commandment means and involves, there are lots of different ways to lie and dishonesty comes in different sizes. How seriously God takes lies, he takes them very seriously. And the story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5 proves that. And then there's the uncomfortable truth about ourselves in light of the ninth commandment. That's what we need to face up to. That's what we need to confess before God, that we're sinners, that we've broken his law, and that his son Jesus is the only solution to our problem. Let, let me finish with this interesting, fascinating, and encouraging anecdote. Uh, the, the, the story we opened with, the, the one about Jonathan Aiken, might have seemed fairly dull and irrelevant uh, as I was typing it out this week. Uh, I did think it's a very Stephen story to tell because it's political and it's about somebody involved in politics. But you got the details. Aiken lied about something, got caught out big time, and it absolutely ruined him, ruined his career, ruined his life. But it's not the end of the story. Jonathan Aiken became a Christian, and now he's an ordained minister in the Church of England. L listen to an answer he gave to the question, how did you become a Christian? Aiken said, I attended church intermittently and knew some teaching from school, but I thought Christianity was like an a la carte menu where I could pick and choose. So I wasn't a real Christian, but then my life fell apart. Entirely my fault, I lost a libel case and all of a sudden I was in a vortex of defeat, divorce, disgrace, bankruptcy and jail. But it's in our pain and brokenness that we become closest to Christ. I realize the thing that matters most is a strong moral and spiritual foundation to one's life. I didn't have a hallelujah bingo conversion moment and it wasn't an easy journey. I wondered if I was going mad despite some progress, stumbled, doubted and backslid. But before I went to prison, I surrendered. From that moment, 
while everything got worse externally, internally, everything got better. From that moment, from the moment of his conversion, everything got worse externally, but internally, everything got better. Jonathan Aiken's trial opened the sermon. His conversion closes it. And with that anecdote about his conversion, we're reminded that any liar, any sinner who truly confesses the truth about themselves will know and experience the grace that's to be found in Jesus. The one who is the way, the truth, and the life. The one who said that his truth will set us free. Just like in previous weeks, as we've been thinking about the commandments, so we're going to close by praying through some of what we've thought about this evening. Let's pray together. <coughs> Father, as we come to you tonight, having thought together about the ninth commandment, we come to acknowledge that you are the God of truth. We can say the following things by, by reading and knowing the scriptures. We know that it's impossible for you to lie. We know that your word is truth. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know you, the one who is true. You're the true God and eternal life. We know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And we know that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. Therefore, our prayer this evening is simple. It's expressed in Psalm 25, verse 5. We pray that you would lead us in your truth and teach us. For you are the God of our salvation. For you we wait all the day long. Father, help us as we live as your followers in this world to be people of the truth, people who speak true words. So we pray that you would help us to avoid gossip. We pray that we wouldn't steal the treasure of someone else's reputation by speaking ill or badly of them. Help us to sift our words and to ask, is what I'm about to say true? If so, does it really need to be said about this person in this conversation? Would I put it this way if the person I'm talking about were here to listen to me? As we were thinking this morning, help our words to be gracious and to be seasoned with salt. And we would also take this opportunity to repent of times when we've gossiped or spoken ill of someone. We pray that you would forgive us for the hurt that we've caused. And we also pray that you would help us to forgive those who've spoken ill of us. Lord, we realize that our greatest need is to confess the truth about ourselves before you. We confess that we're lawbreakers, guilty rebels against you, the living God. We pray that as we look at the law and as it acts like a mirror for us, that you would use it to convict us of our sin, but also that you would use it to, to point us, direct us, and encourage us to look to our precious Savior, the Lord Jesus. We thank you that Jesus came as the truth this world so desperately needs. We realize that this world is dominated by the father of, of lies, our enemy, the devil. But we thank you for the truth that Jesus brings and provides for us. Help us to delight in the truth of Jesus' words. 
Help us to be people who love the truth of the gospel and help us to live in a way that honors the name of our Redeemer. Lead us in your truth and teach us. For you are the God of our salvation. For you we wait all the day long. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.